0: Okay, so Catherine Wheatman, welcome to the Cam Marketing Save the Planet podcast.
1: Hi, Michelle and Gemma. It's great to be here.
0: So, Catherine, you are an international speaker, workshop facilitator, coach, consultant and host of your own podcast, The Circular Economy Podcast. You founded Rethink Global to help businesses, social enterprises and community groups to use circular economy pr- approaches to build a better world. And Catherine, you've written an award winning book, A Circular Economy Handbook, How to Build a More Resilient, Competitive and Sustainable business, which pretty much explains the what, why, and how of the circular economy. So we are super excited to have you with us. And I thought it would be a good starting point to kind of, I know we haven't got a load of time together, so you can't tell us everything about the circular economy, but it would be a really nice uh, intro to the podcast to give us a quick overview and indeed how you came to be championing it.
1: Okay, great. Well, maybe I'll start quickly with how I came to be championing it and we can get that out of the way. So back in the early 2000s, I was starting to get more interested in organic food and um, looking back up the supply chain. So not just about what it meant for food on my plate, but what it meant for people working on farms and animals and soil and all the rest of it. And that kind of led to me getting more interested in sustainability generally and realising that as I was working uh, for DHL and helping lots of um, big global companies kind of be, a, uh, you know, in my tiny way, be a bit, uh, bit more efficient, all I was doing was kind of perpetuating the, the problem. And I was going along to events and hearing people in supply chains talk about a bit of driver training and pumping up the tyres and aerodynamics on the truck and just thinking, well, what about all the rest of it? And eventually, it dawned on me that instead of just filling in feedback forms, saying why isn't somebody talking about this, you know, perhaps I should stick my head above the parapets and do it myself. So, um, to cut a long story short, that kind of led to me deciding I wanted to focus on that. So, stepping off the corporate um, career ladder back in 2013, at the end of 2013, and starting to talk about sustainability and the circular economy. And um, when I was researching. Um, all of this to start talking to DHL's customers and so on, I was coming across, well, first of all, I got really depressed and thought the only way was we were all going to have to have less and who was going to buy into that. That you know, that wasn't going to work. But I came across um, new bits of jargon, including industrial ecology, 3D printing, that was new back in 2010, and the circular economy. And uh, when I started looking into those um, and realizing what the circular economy was all about, a light bulb went on and, and suddenly I realized that there was a way that we could just design different approaches so that we're selling services rather than selling ownership of stuff. We're making products that are much more durable, that are designed to be repaired, even to be remade, and eventually to be recycled. And we can start to use different materials, so recycled materials and if we're going to use um, what we call biological materials, so food, fibres, timber, that kind of thing, they should be sustainably sourced. And by that, I mean, if we, if we look at an example of um, cutting down a tree to make a table, the tree should be able to regrow in the time we expect the table to last. Otherwise, that's not sustainable. So that's kind of the circular economy in a nutshell. Um, But at at the moment, there seems to be a lot of focus on, um, you know, a bit of recycled content and materials and talking about making things that are designed to be recycled. And that's not really slowing down the flow of of stuff at all. So maybe as we talk through this, we can get into the different business models um, that help people buy things that last for a lot longer, help people rent, subscribe and share things.
2: It's really interesting because, um, in terms of, I was reading on your website around circular economy models. So, as you said, there you've got subscription, paper use, products as a service, performance contracts. Essentially, moving away from consume own and throw away, consume own and throw away, which is what we've done in what the last fifty years, isn't it? We've driven those consumption levels up. I guess one question for you is: which industries? are doing well at the moment in terms of circular economy? Just to give the listeners an idea of who's really embraced it and doing it well. And then who either isn't doing it well or needs to get on board in your view?
1: Um, I don't think anybody's really doing it well. Maybe, maybe to take a different angle on that, where I see most of the innovation and activity and the drive coming from is from startups uh, and also from small businesses. All the big global corporates are finding it really difficult to turn the super tanker around. So we're seeing quite a lot of pilot schemes and tests and small scale innovations around products and so on. So that's generating quite a lot of publicity, but none of it is re- really moving the dial on slowing down the flow of resources. And I think the you know what big companies should be worried about is this disruption that if something really takes hold, as we saw with say moving from um, uh, moving towards uh, you know video on demand and streaming and music on demand, suddenly that took off, and companies like Kodak even though they employed the guy who invented the digital camera, they didn't take it seriously as the next big thing. And they ended up going bust because they were fixated with their cash cow, um, you know, film, because it made lots of money. And the politics inside the company made that happen. It wasn't just a kind of, you know, uh, blindside from one or two people. It was the the whole company was kind of built around that. So I think I'm seeing encouraging activity from companies like IKEA, who did a pilot for Black Friday with take-back schemes in, I think it was, 27 different countries, offering money back. And I was kind of thinking, well, that could be a good sign. But equally, if I'm cynical, I could think, well, it's just a way to start moving a bit of stock. But if we think about how to move into the circular economy, then these kind of pilot schemes where you're trialling things across different countries, you're having a look at what customers might bring back, um, you know, what, what makes it sticky for customers? If you're thinking IKEA furniture, are you really going to disassemble that or are you going to try and lug a big, Billy really bookcase all the way back to IKEA? What kind of stuff's going to go back? What condition is it in? Can IKEA resell that? Is it good enough to resell or is it only fit for recycling? And if it's only fit for recycling, does the design and the materials that are in that product does that lend itself to recycling? So there's an awful lot of learning points that they can take from that and start to think about what they need to change in order to make that a more viable model.
2: It's interesting because we talk about reduce, reuse and recycle and you mentioned recycle and, um Michelle and I have talked about this quite a few times around everybody puts stuff in the recycling bins but actually the proportion of the percentage of that that actually gets recycled is so small it's almost like the biggest greenwashing behavior you know in in ever because you think you're doing good but actually where it goes isn't where you think it goes so the recycling infrastructure is is not is is way behind isn't it in terms of where behavioral change needs to go do you think it will catch up and i guess in your view what needs to happen to to escalate accelerate uh, the recycling cuz you know at the end of the day if we if we don't reduce and reuse and recycling is the only option we need an infrastructure that can can essentially underpin that
1: yeah there's lots of questions to unpack there but thinking about policy at the moment, we don't have a level playing field. So the linear model, take, make, use and dispose, is kind of subsidised by taxpayers, if you like. So it's perfectly legal for a company to put something into the marketplace that's not at all recyclable. It's perfectly legal for companies to extract finite resources that we're not making any more of and, and kind of use those up so that we're depriving future generations of, of having those. It's legal to contribute to deforestation, to um, destroy ecosystems and all the rest of it. So that's the first thing that needs to change is we should, instead of taxing jobs, which we want more of, we should be taxing the use of virgin resources to encourage use of recycled resources, and we should be taxing pollution and waste. And if we think about the UK, although we have a packaging waste levy that was mandated across the European Union, but every country could decide how they were going to do it. So every large-scale producer putting packaging into the marketplace has to pay a levy to cover some of the costs of collecting and recycling that. And it varies according to the ease of recycling. So cans and you know, aluminium tins and paper and so on cost less than plastic but the total revenue raised only funds about 10% of the costs of councils collecting and trying to recycle that. And so what we should be doing is raising those levies so that we can start to fund innovation around the recycling of those difficult materials and anything that's complex like multi-layered packaging packaging with uh, chemicals in it that prevents it being recycled, that should be penalised heavily, again, to encourage the right behaviour. So I think there's lots of carrot and stick opportunities there. But just to, just to take a bit of issue with the, with the three R's, um, and there are lots of different reasons, I think I've even seen a nine R's, but really it should start with rethinking. Yeah. And reducing is already a kind of a negative word, but rethinking, you know, do I need this at all? If I do need it, is there a different way of having access to it? Could I be renting it? Could I be borrowing it? Could I be buying secondhand? And so you're really starting to, to care more about what's, what's coming into your house. And this is where marketing can play a big part. And um, I don't know whether you ever read Vance Packard's book, uh, The Hidden Persuaders, about the kind of the birth of marketing back in the 50s in the United States. And that was one of the books that kind of changed my life. Um, I didn't, didn't read it until uh, probably 2010, but I was shocked to find out that you know, this was when marketing had changed from just advertising stuff, so pictures of fridges and TVs and so on, into really getting into the psychology of how do we persuade people that they need to have the latest thing. And in America, it kind of went further than that. People were told that you were doing your patriotic duty And getting the country back on its feet after the war footing, if you had an extra TV or, you know, two cars and all the rest of it. So people thought that's what they were doing. And this is kind of the birth of, of, you know, consumption and conspicuous consumption. And I think it's going to take a lot of marketing effort to move away from that and help people to think about how they could have something, you know, like my Fairphone that's designed to last longer, designed to be easy to repair by me with just one screwdriver, and I can see the instructions online. And things like that, that help people engage with the product and feel part of the brand and part of the product are going to generate customer loyalty and keep that customer, not, not only that person for life, keeping customer for life, but encouraging them to tell all their friends and colleagues what a brilliant company this is and as you probably know word of mouth marketing is is you know much more powerful as well as being cheaper than trying to use google and facebook and all the others
0: Absolutely. It so is. it so is. and and it's interesting that you you know that that rethinking comes down to the consumer you know it's like what do we bring into our homes how do we do we really need that we, you know this is this is about the consumer voting with using their wallet wisely. But of course, the consumer can only go so far because the consumer can only consume and take, I suppose, what is there. They're not going to be able to innovate and say, hey, why aren't you doing the the rental system or, or why haven't you done this? However, of course, marketers who are aligned with the consumer then have that opportunity to be really doing that insights and that research and not necessarily waiting for the consumer to, to give them the answers, but to definitely have a better understanding of, of the need and desire for consumers to want to do more. Because as Gemma and I uncovered uh, and Geraint when we were writing the book, there seemed to be a very desperate need for consumers and, and people to want to do the right thing. But they didn't really know what to do, where to go, how to, how to go about that. So mm. that brings us back to the marketer and that's why we felt the marketing you know marketing teams and 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 the marketing profession has a responsibility now to kind of wake up to the reality of this what this overconsumption is has created and to be the driver inwards upwards and outwards of of a more positive responsible way of of behaving you know, it's behavioural change that, that is really required here.
1: Yeah, I agree. And just just before we get into what marketers can do with their companies, but just to come back to that point about consumers not being able to innovate, if you're engaging directly with consumers, you're much more likely to find out what they're looking for. And there are new techniques Like user centered design and so on, that don't just listen to what people say, but look at how the product's going to work for them, how it could work better, you know, how does it fit with their lives and so on. And to give an example, um, coming up soon on my podcast, uh, but not yet, so a bit of a preview. um, But Lush have um, uh, just started to do a buyback scheme for packaging. So they have some black plastic pots. And they decided that although they could change the colors and make it fit for going into the council recycling, that still wouldn't properly close the loop. So they decided it was better to get it back to their stores. And they engaged directly with consumers to find out how people wanted this to work. Um, You know, would they be happy to bring back 20 at a time for a bigger voucher? And people said, no, no, that's a bit of a fag and it's going to take us ages. And where do we store it all? So there was all this engagement with their customers to try and find out how this was going to work, what people wanted as a reward yep. to make it worth their while. And it, and it was, you know, incredibly successful. So as soon as lockdown finished and the stores opened, the scheme started and, and uh, you know, it was, it started to be really successful. So there are all these ways of, of really getting to engage with consumers. But in terms of how marketers can kind of, um, you know, go beyond that and helping their companies look at going circular, then... You know, I think every, everybody really wants to be helping make a better world and being part of the solution, not, not yeah. continuing to be part of the pollution. So marketers are in a, in a unique place to be able to help their companies. Look at the business case for moving from this sell more model, encouraging people to, you know, take, make and waste. So moving away from that and looking at all the benefits of building relationships and brand trust building up the credibility with your brand, with the products and helping people trust that if they go to you, you're not necessarily going to have all the perfect answers, but you're being honest about what you've been able to solve so far, honest about what's still to be solved. Patagonia is a great example there. They never say anything sustainable. They always talk about the specifics of what they've been able to do and also share some of the issues they've come across when when, when something's cropped up. So looking at the business case for things like subscriptions, lifetime warranties, repair services, take-back schemes, and so on, what elements of marketing would you be able to do away with? Could you reduce your spend on Google and Facebook? Could you do something different instead? Um, and so I think you know the marketing profession is in a great place to really help businesses think through the strategic and long-term options. How does it build in resiliency and extra profit and um, you know stop customer churn and so on?
2: it's absolutely about about that loyalty and what what marketing can do and, and we talk about the fact that you know marketing goes so beyond just advertising and selling stuff if you really understand the full remit and skills a marketing department can bring to your organization given that we talk to the we're supposed to work cross-functionally and speak to everyone within the business we're supposed to speak to our customers we're constantly monitoring you know the market the horizons the competitors All of that information coming back in and just putting a different lens over it as opposed to how can we sell more of this stuff and changing it into what can we do with this to, as you say, increase loyalty, get our brand out there. But also, you know, by doing things like a buyback scheme or a subscription, there's that constant relationship. You are actually in mind, you know, the mind of your customer far more than if you have just a transactional relationship where you're constantly buying off them. And
1: just going back to Patagonia, and I think IKEA found this as well. So the quality of of Patagonia's stuff and the fact that it's got a lifetime warranty and Patagonia will repair it. Um, You know, I've had a zip replaced on a 10-year-old fleece gilet uh, for free with no no questions asked about how old it was. So that gives people confidence that even if you're buying pre-used stuff, it's in good enough condition and it and therefore it generates a high value. And Ikea found this with their stuff. They were a bit shocked um, probably five or six years ago to find so much, I think it was about 40% of eBay traffic or some ridiculous number was an Ikea product. And first of all, they were shocked and thought, well, you know, that's that's cannibalizing our brand. But then they realized it meant that people had faith that the Ikea stuff did last longer than, than that. So they decided to put commonly used spare parts in Ikea stores for free. So if you'd bought a Billy bookcase and there's some bits missing, you could go in and get them. So all these ways to kind of help consumers or citizens, as we should properly call them, help people feel like, um, you know, that this this brand's got your back, this brand's helping you to to keep things going for longer. If you're confident there'll be a resale value with something, then you perhaps be more inclined to pay a bit more for it. And also subscription models—they're changing. They're enabling brands to engage with customers that they might not have done. So I did a podcast episode with Tamsin Chislett, who's the founder of On Loan, and they provide subscriptions for um, contemporary women's wear brands. I think she calls them so um, more expensive than than Zara and so on, and perhaps so expensive that. Consumers were a bit put off taking the risk of buying a you know a shirt or a, a pair of trousers, but once they were able to have them through a subscription and think, "Wow, this is really good quality and it fits me really well and it's real really well made," and so you know the shape's good, so I look really good in this compared to something from um, a lower high street brand, and then they might be more prepared to invest in a jacket for the long term or some trousers that you know can be part of a capsule wardrobe. So again, it's a way of engaging with more consumers through a different model. And I think one of the other things that, um, you know, even though I used to work in, in the fashion industry, I still don't really get this disconnect between people wanting to look a bit different and yet you end up looking the same because you're buying what some influencer's is saying or you know whatever a pop star is wearing whereas if you look at some of the fashion designers going back to Coco Chanel and also some of the well-known artists a lot of them have got their own look that's kind of two or three key pieces of clothing and they wear those every day and yet nobody says oh look at them in that boring stuff again it's their look But what you wear says an awful lot about you. So if you're wearing something that says, you know, I really care about the planet and I care about people and I care about future generations, then it doesn't really matter if it's not this week's thing, does it? You know, you've kind of got your own uh, badge that that you're displaying to the world.
0: It kind of comes back to that point you were saying about marketing and persuasion and people being made to feel they were doing the right thing. I suppose it's that there's a parallel there, isn't there? That if you are wearing the Patagon, if you are wearing something that's been, that's been Fixed, you know, and repaired, uh, and you're reusing it. Then that says something about you in a really positive way, and and that's where I suppose we want to. Marketing can can support uh, and move people towards as, as well. One of the things I would say, though, as a marketer, is there's a lot of there's a lot of mixed views, and there's a lot of misinformation, isn't there, out there, Catherine, about about some of these ideas and ideologies that, that are around there about what is sustainable, what is e- eco-friendly, you, you know. Can you share a little bit about some of those challenges for marketers to overcome?
1: Yeah, sure. And it is pretty complicated because of the amount of misinformation. Fashion and, and technology and, and packaging is no different to lots of other fields where there are vested interests trying to keep the status quo going and they're putting an awful lot of time into that and one of the recurring themes I'm seeing particularly around plastics is to put the focus on the consumer yeah. instead of on the on the company and the supply chain so as as citizens we should be you know careful about that being made to feel that you know it, plas- people are the problem with plastics not not the plastics themselves well if you know if all plastics were designed to be reusable and, and recyclable then we wouldn't be the problem would we but I think yeah being being really careful about any greenwashing, so not using words like eco and green sustainable and even circular because they don't they don't have a definition so if you're going to use those terms you need to be specific and say what the circular aspect is or why this is more sustainable than than the alternative not just to kind of put a badge around something and make it seem as if it's solving all the problems and then also being careful with some of this misinformation, these factoids, as, as I've heard them called, something that's actually unreliable, but it's been repeated so often it's become accepted as a fact. So one of those that surfaced relatively recently is that fashion is the second most polluting industry in the world. And that's been shown to be, you know, um, it, it wasn't deliberately created as a as misinformation um you know it was a, a mistake that's been corrected by the source company, McKinsey, but by then it had got into all sorts of other publications, including from the UN and I've seen it on brand websites and so on. So making sure you really know the origins of something and showing the reference that, so that even if something is wrong, as long as you've referenced it, um, you know you, you you kind of being a bit more honest about where it's come from. Um, and then there are also comparisons of things so cotton versus versus polyester is another hot topic at the moment with it it was found that the um uh, petrochemical companies were putting out false information around that to make polyester look much much better than cotton and so you know funnily enough, a few years, years later, we find that lots of textile companies have moved towards Making more polyester, which, when it gets into the end of use stage and and through washing and everything, is creating microfibers that we now realise are getting into getting into soil, getting into water, into nature, and of course into our food chain.
2: And I think the more and more conversations that Michelle and I have been having, as I'm sure you're finding the the same, is. There's this, there's this balance to be struck because as you said earlier, large corporates, they can't turn the tankers around quickly. So there comes a point, and I think marketing needs to take some of the responsibility and, and lead this in saying, these are the good things we're doing, and this is what we're trying to change. But actually, we acknowledge we're not there yet. And we're not going to use, which turns into greenwash, the positive message, messages to almost mask all of the awful stuff we're doing or the bad mm. stuff or the things that are damaging the environment. And I think if if more if more of that message was out, I think people will accept that as long as we're on that journey to making positive change, doing the right thing, some of that journey is going to take longer. If you're a startup and you can start with a blank piece of paper, then you are going to reach those, you know, sustainable Targets a lot quicker than if you're a Unilever or a Coca Cola or, you know, the, the, these huge organizations that are doing good, but they are also a part of the problem. But I think we need to, instead of calling them out all the time, you know, they need to admit it and we need to go, there is balance. And we spoke about this with um, John Grant um, in one of our other podcasts where, you know, he was saying about Pampers and how much good they've done. For society and sustainability, but their product sits in landfill, and I think you know it's it's about educating yourself, isn't it, and uh, on understanding that there are two, three sides to this complex issue because it's it is such a complex issue.
1: Mm, it is complex, and I think I'd go back to something that uh, Yvonne Schuinard from Patagonia to to cite them again, but he was quoting the author Daniel Goldman. Mm-hmm. And his motto was, know your impacts as a company, make improvements and share what you learn. And that's the ethos that they've tried to follow. So Patagonia is really good at sharing what it's doing and also trying to create markets for things. So where Patagonia realises it can't solve a whole sector problem by itself, it's trying to create a market. So what they're doing is going beyond organic cotton and trying to create a market for regenerative cotton where regenerative agriculture is used. So that's moving away from um, ploughing, moving away from using fertilisers, pesticides and and so on. So, and they're then trying to encourage um, other companies into that marketplace as well, because it's only by encouraging farmers to do that, by paying a premium and, and getting some publicity around to help people understand what the options are, then you can start to create a movement. So even if it's, in tiny ways, you know, if you're involved in any, uh, you know, natural products at all, whether that's fashion, whether that's uh, timber and furniture, um, food, whatever it is, think about is there a way that we could encourage regenerative agriculture, even if it's one tiny ingredient somewhere, but just just to kind of do lots of baby steps instead of sort of thinking, oh, it's too difficult, look at something that would be relatively easy and start to engage with your suppliers. Um, and again, you know, marketing can help with supplier communications as well as getting feedback from employees and, you know, getting to the heart of what people want, want to change, what people are frustrated with, what will help encourage the next, next batch of talent into the business as employees and what will encourage really good suppliers to come to your door and say, we want to work with you.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Yep. And I th- in the pre um, pre podcast chat, Catherine, you you said something which I think is very powerful. How can marketing be different? And you know that is a question that marketers a- a- and all of us need to be asked. How can marketing be different? It, it it doesn't have to be this make promote consume you know and get people to consume more. This is. This is now a very important time for marketers to be thinking, how can marketing be different? How can we be using those powers of persuasion, the innovation, the connectivity with our our customer, with the people, with our landscapes, with the environments that we serve? How can we actually be learning, collaborating, and actually co-creating solutions in a far more responsible way and and that really is you know it isn't it is it's not about a whole sea change it, it really is just about how can we turn it around a little bit and and use a different use a different lens
1: yeah exactly it is it is a different lens and I think you put that really well and I guess it's building on some of the, you know, I'm, I'm not in marketing, but I saw a uh, chart the other day. Somebody had done a kind of evolution of marketing. And, uh, of course, on there was the, the social media um, sea change that came up. Yep. But really, some of the, the changes that are needed now are all about engaging with the customer. And social media is a brilliant way to do that. So more than ever before, marketers are in the hot seat of being able to really get to the heart of what people want, um, why are people wanting to do this? And is there a way that we can help them do that in a more sustainable and future fit way? And when people are sort of, uh, you know, it's still in the habits of take, make, waste, what is it that's making the alternative, the more sustainable alternative? What, what is it that's making that sticky and difficult to do? So how can we get past that friction?
2: Yeah.
1: Um, and marketing's in, in a, you know, in the hot seat, really, for being able to change that.
0: Absolutely. So we like to ask, I think that's a brilliant segue into the big question then, Catherine, because we ask all of our guests the three same questions as we wrap up our podcast. The first question is, can marketing save the planet? What's your view?
1: I think marketing can be a fundamental driver in helping change the planet.
2: Fantastic. And question two is, what do you hope business looks like in 10 years time?
1: Definitely more circular. I'm not, not holding out hopes that it would be a completely closed loop in 10 years' time, but I, I'd i like to see a lot more initiatives that really slow the flow of resources. So moving towards access instead of ownership and moving towards durable, repairable products that can be remade and finally resold. And I don't want to see lots of greenwash around, you know, a bit of recycled content and um, shoe soles made from, sugar cane and that kind of stuff
0: no it's got to be meaningful hasn't it and and transparent and and last but not least if you could give one piece of advice to a marketer that is is really thinking about this seriously what would it be
1: learn about the circular economy there are lots of great free MOOCs out there um, and, and books long and short, mine's one of the longer ones, but learn about it so that you understand how it actually works and that it's a lot more about than recycling. And then use that circular mindset to get conversations going at work, conversations with your marketing colleagues and conversations with people in other parts of the business. And think about the first baby steps that your company could take towards a more circular business.
0: Brilliant! Absolutely brilliant. So, Catherine, thank you so much for joining us and sharing more on the circular economy with us. We have a learning zone on our podcast now, and um, your book is up on our learning zone. And the Circle Lab—that uh, directory of case studies of of people that are all getting into the circular economy, sharing the insight because that's such an important part, isn't it? You know, you don't have to start from scratch. Somebody else may have already solved the circular challenge for you or be on the way to doing that and and so you can explore that directory so that's upon our learning zone too Um, and we'll also share a link to your podcast and everything in the show notes so that uh, people can find out more about the work that you're doing the brilliant work that you're doing directly
1: brilliant thank you very much Michelle and Gemma
0: thank you